What sorrow awaits you Pharisees, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. What sorrow awaits you Pharisees, for you love to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplaces. Yes, what sorrow awaits you, for you are like hidden graves in a field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption they are stepping on. Teacher, said an expert in religious law, you have insulted us too in what you just said. Yes, said Jesus. What sorrow also awaits you experts in religious law, for you crush people with unbearable religious demands and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. What sorrow awaits you, for you build monuments for the prophets your own ancestors killed long ago. But in fact, you stand as witnesses who agree with what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you join in their crime by building the monuments. This is what God in his wisdom said about you. I will send prophets and apostles to them, but they will kill some and persecute the others. As a result, this generation will be held responsible for the murder of all of God's prophets from the creation of the world, from the murder of Abel to the murder of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, it will certainly be charged against this generation. What sorrow awaits you experts in religious law for you remove the key to knowledge from the people. You don't enter the kingdom yourselves and you prevent others from entering. Verse 53, as Jesus was leaving, the, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees became hostile and tried to provoke him with many questions. They wanted to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Cleanse us this, this morning as we approach it. I thank you, Lord, that you forgive us of our sins. And Holy Spirit, that you translate your word for us this morning. Uh, that, that you encourage us with it, that you open our eyes to the wonders of it to give us exactly what we need from you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I, I came across um, a recent study. You know, you see a, a recent study came out, a new study finds, you know, and this has nothing to do with, with the virus, but this came out from uh, the Pew Research Center. They do a lot of public uh, polling. And I thought when it said it was the Pew Research Center, it had something to do with church, you know, because we used to have the pews. But it wasn't. It was from the Pew Charitable Trust, uh, two people whose last name was actually Pew, Newton Pew and Mary Anderson Pew. That's your little trivia on it for the day. And there, there was a study they had done. They, they did a survey to measure the connection between personal belief about God and morality or goodness in a person. And the question that they were that they were trying to answer or that they were asking people in this survey is is belief in God necessary to be good? Is belief in God necessary to have morality? Is belief in God necessary to be a good person? Do I need God to be a good person? And they, they, they surveyed people from the U.S., they surveyed people from around the world. 54% of Americans who were surveyed said that it is not necessary to believe in God to have good morals 
good actions to be a good person. 54% said, I don't have to believe in God to be good. And that startled me. It's even worse in other parts of the, our neighbors to the north, Canada, 73% of Canadians, so almost one in four, almost three out of four, said, I don't have to believe in God in order to be good. God's not necessary for me to be good. Europeans as a whole, all the Europeans that were surveyed, theirs was 78% said, God's not necessary for me to be good. Now, this number had gone up significantly since the last time they had done the survey in 2002. In 2002, 58% of Americans that were surveyed said, God is necessary to be moral. God is necessary uh, in my life for me to be good. And then 17 years later, so you went from 58% saying, yes, I need God to be good, to only 44% of Americans saying, Yes, you must believe in God. He must be involved for you to be good. So there is a prevailing opinion in America and in the modern world that we don't need God in order to be good, to be moral, to be righteous. And, and it's startling to, to hear that, but then you see it in action every day in our country. I woke up yesterday morning to an alert on my phone that the Supreme Court had ruled that the state of Nevada could limit church gatherings even while they opened casinos, you know, during the virus. We've got all kinds of stuff going on. They, and the churches sued the state because they said, you're telling us we can't have over X number of people, but you're opening all of the casinos with not anywhere near the same amount of restrictions. That's not right. And the Supreme Court ruled and said the state can limit churches gathering while still opening casinos. And I saw people posting on this yesterday. They're just like, I don't understand. This doesn't make any sense. How can this happen? And it happens because over half of the country, according to this study, doesn't believe that you need God in order to be good. Doesn't believe that belief in God is necessary. So if the Supreme Court or Congress or whoever, whatever body you're looking at, if it's representative of this survey, the majority of them believe that it's nice. It's okay. It's nice, but it's not necessary. And that's a problem. That's a big problem because this prevailing opinion in the modern world is that you don't need God in order to be good. And so I have some questions that come after that. Number one, what is your definition of good? If you don't believe you need God in order to be good, where do you get your definition of good? Surely not from him, right? Surely not from scripture, right? Because he's not necessary. So where are we getting our definition of good? The old question, who says? Who is exercising authority in this? Who, who tells us what good is and what morality is and the, the worst part of it is, is that they're just deciding for themselves. They're making it up as they go along and, and, and you'll see them do it in such a weird, weird way. If you start to ask questions of people that hold it, well, God's not necessary for you to be good and moral. You can be good and moral. You, you can reason that out on your own. Wow. Okay. Oh, gosh. Okay. Uh, so what about killing? 
Okay, is killing wrong? And they'll say, oh, absolutely. Killing is wrong. You should never kill. Killing is wrong. Well, why, why is killing wrong? Well, every person has value. Every person has value. I agree. Where do you believe they get this value from? I mean, not from God. You don't believe he's necessary. Where do they get this value from? And, and so they decide collectively when we have value and when we don't have value. And so they say, of course, killing is wrong. And you're like, yeah, killing's, killing's wrong. So of course, killing babies would be wrong. Oh yes, killing a baby is wrong. No one should kill a baby. Well, then we should shut down Planned Parenthood, right? Oh no, that's not killing. That's a medical procedure. Why? Because that's what they decided. Because they define goodness for themselves. You say, well, that doesn't seem right. That's a medical procedure, but this is killing. So in, in what circumstance would you, would you do this? Would you allow this, what you call a medical procedure, to happen? Oh, we leave that decision up to the, to the woman involved. She's going to make that decision. We're not going to make it for her. She should be able to make that decision. And then my question is, how does she make that decision? How does she decide that if, if she's one that doesn't believe that God is necessary for goodness and righteousness in our life? Where is she getting her basis to make such a su such a big decision? Where is it coming from? Where are we getting it? What about the man that's involved that slept with her to create this baby that now has become something she wants to deal with? What, how does he decide what he does from here on out? Does he commit? Does he not? What does he do? You see all the problems that come up from us just deciding on our own what is good and what's okay and what is right. When they say God is not necessary for the culture at large, how are they making these decisions? How do they define goodness? How do they define righteousness? How do they define what is good and what is bad? And they're doing it by feeling instead of by truth. And you see that because feelings change. So their decisions on things change. Well, we feel this is okay today, but tomorrow it's not going to be okay or vice versa. This was, not okay. this was not okay yesterday, but today we feel differently, so we're going to change it. There's enough of us that we can agree together and we can put it into place. So when God is not necessary, how are we making these decisions? And they're making it with feelings instead of truth. And it's worse because they're taking their feelings as the truth. If God is not necessary, how do we determine what good even is. And the bigger problem for us, and you're starting to see it even when in Nevada and California, what happens when they decide this isn't good anymore? What happens when they decide, you know, churches, they were good, but now they're just becoming a problem. They're not necessary. What happens when they decide that this isn't good or helpful? Right? things may get more difficult. But that's what we're going to talk about today. What are we supposed to do in the midst of all of that? How do we respond to already attitude like that? How do we respond and what do we do? Because here's what we can't hope in. We cannot hope that if we just get enough Christians in government that we'll be able to turn it around and we'll be able to legislate 
morality and all will be well. We can't put our hope in that because we tried that and it did not work. We tried it and it didn't work for the longest time in our country. We were ruled by Christian morals and ethics and it, it controlled what you saw on TV and what you heard on the radio and where you could go and what you could do. And it was controlled by that. But it, it, it didn't stay. It wasn't lasting. Should we be involved in government? Yes. Should we get Christians in government? Yes. But we cannot make that our hope for the fix because, again, we tried it and it didn't work. So what we need and what we're going to talk about today, you're like, are you going to get back to the text? Yes. The necessity, what we must have is genuine faith and a heart that's devoted to God, loving God and loving others. So in Luke chapter 11 and starting in verse 37, Jesus was invited to lunch at a Pharisee's house. Well, the Pharisees were, were, were the, the, the heads of the, the religious uh, organization at the time. And they already had issues with Jesus. But this Pharisee invites Jesus to lunch and Jesus went. Jesus went to lunch with somebody who had probably already set themselves at enmity with him or in opposition with him. And he goes and he reclines at the table. You remember he would sit at, they didn't sit in chairs. He would just kind of recline at the table with his feet out behind him. And it says the Pharisee, was surprised that when Jesus came in and, 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 and into the house for the lunch that he just sat down without performing the hand washing ritual or the hand washing ceremony. Now, this was not about hygiene. We're like, well, yeah, Jesus, you probably should wash your hands. I mean, we, you know, the son of God and everything, but you just set an example. We know you should wash your hands. And it wasn't about cleanliness, like I'm going to clean my hands and get the dirt and the germs. Off. It was a ceremony that they would do, from what I understand, involved taking a small egg full of water and you would pour it starting at the elbow and it would run down your arm. It, it was it was ceremonial. It, it was more a, a show of here's what I'm doing to, to be clean. And Jesus reclined at the table and, and he didn't do that. And this man, it says he was surprised that Jesus didn't do that. And then Jesus... Jesus opens up on him in verse 39, basically saying, what is wrong with y'all? What is wrong with y'all? Verse 39, you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of a cup and the dish, but the inside is filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Fools, didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor and you will be clean all over See, Jesus is coming at him saying, you, you've modified your behavior on the outside. You're so careful to do all these things on the outside to show everybody how clean you are. But on the inside, you're still dirty. You're, you're still greedy and you're still selfish. And there's so much awfulness still on the inside of you. He says, didn't God make the inside too? Doesn't God speak to it first above the other and and. and for Jesus, which one is more important, how the inside looks or how the outside looks? And obviously he pointed out that it was the inside. He said, your observances aren't changing or transforming your heart. 
Right? And again, this was a weird situation for the guy. He expected, well, Jesus, you know, he's Jesus, so he should be doing all of these things. It would be like if we went to lunch with Jesus at the Mexican food restaurant and sat down with him and you're just kind of waiting for him to bless the food. You're like, does he pray before we start eating the chips or does he pray when the entree comes? What's he going to do? And Jesus just sits down and starts eating the chips. Okay, so he's not... Okay, so we don't pray before the chips. And the entree comes and you're kind of watching him like you hadn't picked up your fork yet. Your enchiladas are sitting there. You're like, is he going to pray before we eat? And he just starts eating. You'd be like, I mean, oh, my, Jesus didn't pray. Right? But then you think about why do we pray before the meal? It's to turn our hearts and our attitudes toward God the Father. It's not, Joe, if I don't pray over this, then I'll certainly be poisoned and die. And so I must pray over it to protect me. From that, and I don't do it so that I get attention from everybody else in the restaurant. And, and so Jesus was really big on why are you doing what you are doing? And he said that you, you, you take great care to clean up the outside and what everybody can see, but the inside, your heart is far from God. And because your heart is far from God, he makes the connection that you are unloving and unjust to. Your, your, your neighbor to those who are th those who are outside. And, and he says something very radical. He says, if, if you'll clean the inside, then you'll be clean all over. If you clean the inside, then nothing will be unclean to you. And he was changing the way that they he wanted to change the way that they saw the world. He was like, the things that you're doing aren't making, your aren't making your, you clean. You're not winning a clean contest that you're in with everybody else that's at the table. That's not what you're doing. He said, you should be chasing after God in love with him. And then that funds all your observances. And it also leads you to love those who are around you. Because what they were doing is they were loving the rules and despising the ruler. They were following the, the law and not loving the law giver. And then they were even making up their own rules. This hand purification thing wasn't in Scripture. It wasn't there. It was just part of their tradition. It wasn't part of the law that came from God through Moses at Sinai. It wasn't part of that. They just developed it at some point and got so used to it that they said, okay, this is what you do. Kind of like us when we sit down at the table to bless it. It's, it's, it is biblical, but not necessarily how we do it. And you see how we can take something that's good and, and it can turn to, you have to do this. And if you don't, you're awful. And that's how they had left it. He, he went at them in verse 42. He said, you even tithe the tiniest income from your herb garden. So they've had, you know, they got these little window herb gardens like you see online that people have. And if, so if it grew a little bit, they would take 10% of that and give it to the temple. He said, you're so careful to even do the littlest things in these certain areas, but you ignore justice for others and you ignore the love of God. And then he says, you should tithe. You should be focused on these areas, but not at the expense of everything else. You should be able to do both. You following the commandments should not make you less loving, should not make you less caring about those around you. Observances should not move your heart away from the one that you're observing. The one that you're doing it for. 
That's his point. It's like continue to do these things, but don't do it in a loveless way. Do it in a way that loves God and is focused on others. Remember, uh, we, I talked about that last week when we were talking about the parable that he told the Samaritan, the who is my neighbor, that it started out, what must I do to have eternal life? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And they were missing that. They didn't love God, and they didn't love their neighbor. They were too busy having a contest to see who's the cleanest. How many times did you purify your hands? I purified my hands five times. I'm cleaner than you. And it's silly, but that's what they had developed. Again, their observances, moving their heart away from the one that they were supposed to be observing. And in that system, that competition may be good for actually getting people to follow the rules, but it's bad at changing the heart. It's bad at accessing the heart. And, and, and watch this. Look at verse 43. He kept telling what sorrow awaits you for you love to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogue and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplaces. Yes, what sorrow awaits you for you are like hidden graves in a field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption they are stepping on. He says your love is on the wrong thing. You don't love God. You don't love your neighbor. What did he say you love? You love to sit in positions of honor in the synagogue. You love receiving the greetings where they call you by your full and formal title in the street. Your love is on the wrong thing. They loved the things that made them appear great, not the opportunity to make God great. When we walk the Christian life, it shouldn't be so we can make ourselves look great. It's so we make much of the grace and might of God. They love the things that, have made them, that made them appear great, not the opportunities to make God great. It was a performance. They were center stage and they were loving that. They had put themselves at the center of it. Their love was on the wrong thing. He called them, you're like hidden graves in a field that defile people by surprise. Okay, they, would, they were very careful to mark graves because they believed that if you came into contact with something dead, that that would make you unclean, right? So they would mark it. You were supposed to do that. And he says, y'all are like unmarked graves hidden in a field. People are just walking along and they're becoming defiled by you without, being, without knowing that it's going to happen. They think they're just walking along, that everything's okay, but your lifestyle is actually making other people worse. It wasn't going well at lunch. The conversation with Jesus and the Pharisees and what an image that he would throw around. You know, he said, y'all are like uh, a, a dish where you worry about cleaning up the outside, but you leave the inside all dirty. What an image that is. You're like a hidden grave in a field. What an image that is that he gave us. And then something really interesting happened in verse 45 it says, teacher said an expert in religious law, which is that's who asked the question last week, who's my neighbor, was one of the experts in religious law, one of the uh, scribes, one of the uh, assistants there in the temple. They said, teacher, you've insulted us too in what you just said. Hey, you're hurting our feelings talking like that. Right? Now, he should have just been quiet because it's about to get bad for him now. 
But you see what happens when you start saying the truth, it can hurt our feelings, right? There's, there's one great saying, facts don't care about your feelings. They don't change based on your feelings. Truth does not change based on how you feel about it. And when you've been living contrary to it and somebody shines a light on that, it's like, I don't like this. And so Jesus said, I bet you don't like it. I'm glad you, you spoke up because y'all have got sorrow coming too. Let me tell you about it. He said, you crush people and never, e never move to ease their burden. He says, what sorrow awaits you for you crush people with unbearable religious demands and you never lift a finger to ease their burden. See, the rules that they propagated, again, most of them that they had just developed over time, they weren't scriptural, they weren't based in scripture. They were just building them up as they went along and they were making them complex they were contradictory. They didn't always agree with each other. They were very, very difficult, so much so that just a normal working person who had to go out into the marketplace in and out every day couldn't follow them. They couldn't keep up with them. They were always breaking all of these rules that they were putting into place. And so it created this big gap between the scribes and the Pharisees and everybody else. And the scribes and Pharisees enjoyed that. They enjoyed being at the top of the mountain that they had built up and that nobody else was able to ascend to the point that they were. He says, if you only give people the law, it's going to crush them and hurt them and they will hate it. And this is why we can't depend on government to legislate morality. We can't depend on government to legislate goodness because if you put in just a law, just a restriction, trying to restrict someone's evil, guess what? They're going to hate it and they're going to fight against it and they're going to get out from underneath of it absolutely as quick as they can. That's why we can't depend on that. The law by itself is crushing if it's not transforming the heart. If the heart isn't changed, then the law is just restrictive. And again, at some point, they're going to break it and lawlessness is going to abound. And that's where he goes next. He said, and I won't read all of this part again out of the, the text, but he said, every time God sent a prophet to try to wake you up, to try to call you to repentance, to, to try to shine a light on your hearts, you would kill them. He said, all through history, your ancestors, every time a prophet would come, they would kill them, take their life. He said, and now y'all are having these ceremonies and you build up these monuments to these prophets that you say you love so much and you respect so much. And your ancestors were the ones that killed them. And you're not acknowledging that. And you're not saying, yes, yeah, so oh, that was and, and coming to repentance yourself. You're just acting like everything's OK. Look how great we are. We're appreciating the prophet Zechariah. And we're not going to note that our ancestors killed him because they didn't want to hear the message that he was bringing. The prophets came to call their hearts to wake up and call them to repentance. And they kept killing them. They didn't want to hear it. And the subtext there was he, he knew they were going to do that to him, too. They knew they were going to do that to him, too. And you see how it ended in verse 53, just the hatred that was being stirred up in their hearts by Jesus just speaking the truth. 
And these people, the horrible part about it, they should have been the first ones in the gate. They had read the scripture more than anybody else. They had a closer relationship with it than anybody else. They shouldn't have missed it, but they put themselves at the center of it instead of having God at the center of it. With all they were doing, it wasn't reaching the heart. Jesus said, you're crushing people and you're offering them no relief. It's like the law is meant to point out to us that we're not good and that we need God in order to be good. We need him to move on our circumstance, to transform our hearts and change us from the way that we are, which is sinful to the way that we should be, which is in relationship with him. But Jesus said in verse 52, he said, the sorrow awaits you because you remove the key to knowledge from the people. He's like, what would unlock all of this? You're keeping it away. You're, you're not revealing to them the true plan that God has for their life, which is to send the Messiah and bring a savior to say, yes, you're sinful, but I'll make you righteous. I'll endure your punishment so that you don't have to. And that you can live forever in my righteousness. He said, you're withholding that from them. You're not going into the kingdom yourself. And even worse, you're keeping others out as well. Again, it wasn't going good at lunch. And then we see in verse 53 and 54, we see their hearts as this conversation is wrapping up. Says as Jesus was leaving, you know, he's, he's about to head out. I don't know if he got to eat or not. The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees became hostile and tried to provoke him with many questions. And you see that, right? All this hostility that's just rising up all over you like, what are you mad about? And they can't even properly communicate why they're mad. But there's this hostility just, just spewing out. And they tried to provoke him with many questions. They wanted to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. And Jesus laid all of this out to them. It said while he was reclining at the table, can you imagine? He's like, what sorrow awaits for y'all? Seriously, what's wrong with y'all? Why aren't you listening to what I'm saying? Why haven't you heard what I've said? And, and like we, we don't picture that as him being loving. Right. Jesus is love. Right. Jesus loves everybody. Did he love them? Yes. He loved them enough to tell them the truth. Love isn't just, oh, okay, well, all right, that's, that's, that's fine. Love isn't just passivity. It's not just meekness. There is a ferociousness aspect to love. If you don't believe that, go mess with somebody's kid and watch what comes out from them, right? They're going to go, whoa. Why? Because there's so much love there. When you hold these babies, when you hold them for the first time and it's your child, you realize at that moment, I could kill a person now. Like if anybody were to do anything to this child, I think I would have trouble not just ripping them apart, right? There's a ferocious part to love. There's a wrath aspect of it. And Jesus is just bringing them the truth. There's a ferocity aspect to love. And again, going back to where we started, there is this prevailing opinion, again, growing. You see it taken over in areas of government. You see it taken over in all other areas of life that we don't need God to be good. 
I don't need God. Now, if you haven't read scripture, you would know that that was the very thing that they said all the way back in the Garden of Eden, right? Well, surely you won't, you won't die without God. You, you can be God. If you do this, you can just take care of all of this for yourself. And this passage in Luke 11 tells us as the church what will work and what won't work as we interact with culture even today. So here's, here's what won't work. Loveless rule keeping. It won't work. Observances just by themselves will not work. Jesus said, you should follow the commandments, but do it the right way. We don't follow the commandments. We don't follow his teachings so that we'll be accepted. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes did. They were like, we'll follow everything and then God won't be able to turn us away. And what we realize is we can't follow Everything. We don't follow in order to be accepted. We follow because we've already been graciously and lovingly accepted. So out of love for the one who came and got us out of darkness and brought us into light, we observe the things we observe. So there's love for God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and all our strength. The one that saved us, cleanses us, the one that strengthens us and gives us the very ability to follow any commandments at all. And then out of that, he directs us to love our neighbor. Remember, who is our neighbor? The one that's in your path, whoever's right in front of you and to serve them even when they're our enemies, even when they've set themselves at odds with us. Godless religion, empty and void of love, can only seek to control people. I don't ever like to say that religion is bad. Religion is just a system of belief. But godless religion, loveless religion, just seeks to control people normally using fear. And surprise, surprise, people don't like that. And it doesn't work. Fear-based behavior modification does not work. You, you can do that for so long with your kids, and then they get big enough to go, you're not going to kill me. I can really do whatever I want. It doesn't Work when you don't understand why things are put in place. So godless religion that's empty and void of love seeks to control usually by fear. And that is not ever going to win the hearts back of any of those 54% that say that they don't need God to be good. They'll just see it as another selfish system with a person at the center of it. And they'll say, I don't, why do I need that? I've already got one like that. We're not the center of what's going on. It's hard to admit that we're not the center of the universe, right? Because everywhere we go, there we are. I'm everywhere that I am. When I woke up this morning, there I was. When I came up here, here I was. I'm with me all day long. So I feel like I'm pretty important in my own life because I'm there all the time. But we are not the center of the universe. And that was one thing that they needed to hear. We can't be like the scribes and the Pharisees always crushing, but never lifting a finger to bring relief. And it's not that that word there is almost speaking like there was a wound and you didn't even reach out to, to apply anything to it. You just let it sit. Godless religion, loveless religion will not win the heart of the 54%. But here's the thing. 
They can be one. They can be one, one at a time. As the church, the church of Jesus Christ, the one that he set up here on earth to image him to his creation, falls more in love with the God that created them. And then out of that acceptance, out of that loving relationship, loves others. Loving those around us. 54%, and I'm almost done, 54% of Americans surveyed said they don't need God to be good. If 54% of Americans said that they don't need water to live, does that make it true? No. It doesn't make it true. So what they're going to experience when they try to live and be good and righteous without God, what they're going to experience is the crushing weight of trying to be God in their own life. Because he has said in Scripture, you can read Romans chapter 1, if you replace God in your life with anything else, he will let you see how that goes. He will turn you over to whatever it is you've replaced him with. And he'll say, you don't want me to be God over your life. You want this or you want to be God over your own life. Here you go. And then the weight and the burden of those demands on our life is just crushing. And so they're going to be crushed under the weight of it. The question is, under that weight, under that heavy burden, what are they going to see in the church? What are they going to see in the church? The church that they thought wasn't necessary. The church that they thought, we don't even need it anymore. We've advanced past that. We're modern now, baby. We don't need that old way of thinking. Why do we need that when they're sitting under the weight of that heavy burden of trying to be God in their own life? Are they going to look at the church and see the fruit of the Spirit? Are they going to look at the church and see something that they can't manufacture in their own life? Something that is unique, something that stands out and stands alone as light in the darkness. Are they going to see love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control? Are they going to see that? Are they going to see love for God and love for people that is unmatched anywhere else? The only way you can prove to people that God is necessary to be good and right in life is to live good and right through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, loving Him and loving others. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand up with me? I want to pray. I want to pray for us. And Andrew's going to come so we can sing as we get ready to go. It is probably going to get much more difficult for the church, for the church in America, for the church in the world. Again, this is a prevailing opinion. It's growing. It's going to get more difficult. But God's not scared. He's not concerned about it. The church has been through times of terrible persecution. We have enjoyed, uh, you know, living the high life in America. And if we have to endure persecution for his name, he calls us blessed, right? He said, blessed are you when people persecute you for my name, when you're hated and reviled for my name. And he didn't say that just in case. He said that because it was coming. And so if we have to face that, we're going to need that close relationship with him because we're not going to be able to hold on by ourselves. 
It's not going to be easy anymore. You're going to find out who's a Christian and who's not a Christian, who was who, who's believing and who was just hanging around to get out of the rain. You're going to find out because the heat is going to be on. But even then, what are they going to see? And he wants them to see his church, not individually, but as a group, that there's something different, that there's something unique, something that can only come from outside of ourselves. That's what it's going to take to draw down that 54% and prove to them you can't do it. You really know you can't do it. You've always known you couldn't do it. We knew the same thing. We're not any better than you. We just found the truth. Come on, I'll tell you about it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that even in the face of difficulty and persecution, God, even in the face of a culture that would deny you and move over into lawlessness and sinfulness, lewdness and senselessness, God, even in the face of that, that we can stand firm, that you've given us a truth that doesn't change, that can't alter it, they, can't, they can try to deny it, but they can't nullify it. It will always be the truth. And just like if they said, I can live without water, they'll find themselves to be wrong. Their declaration does not make what you said untrue. And we stand in the light that you have turned on in our life. I think that you continue to illuminate to us through the power of your Holy Spirit that you are the way, that you are the truth, and you are the life. And you have called us out of darkness to not only rest in your light, but to stand from this position, to live from this position. And that we, through our relationship with you, Lord, we'll, we'll, we'll fall more and more in love with you. That we'll love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and all of our strength. That it will touch every area of our life. And that you will give us the desire and the ability to love those around us. Not just those that are like us, but even those who have put themselves as, as enemies to the truth. God, that we will be able to love them and serve them. And you will help us to walk that out. I thank you that you don't leave us alone. Lord, I pray for your church in this nation, even as some are facing persecution legally and through mandates and directives from uh, government who doesn't see value in relationship with you. I thank you, Lord, that they won't grow weary in doing good, that they will gather together however is best in your name to lift you up and encourage one another so that they can continue to shine the light of your love into their community where they are. Lord, I pray for our church family as we, as we disperse today that we go in peace and unity together with each other. And I thank you, Lord, you protect us. God, keep us safe. Relieve us of the threat of this virus. I thank you that we don't have to be fearful. We don't have to be afraid. I thank you that you give us wisdom and protection in the name of Jesus. And I thank you, Lord, as we go throughout this week, that our eyes will be on you, that we'll receive strength and peace from you, and that you will have our eyes open to opportunities to share not only your truth, but also your love, that we won't be like the scribes and the Pharisees, bringing out regulations that'll crush God, but we will bring forth love that transforms the heart and that we become more and more glad to follow you every day of our life. I thank you for steadfastness and security in the faith, genuine faith, full of love towards you and full of love towards each other. We love you and we thank you. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's sing together.